0: Betsy Kaplan, one of the producers for The Colin McEnroe Show. You're about to hear Colin's full interview with Benjamin Wittes and Susan Hennessy, co-authors of Unmaking the Presidency, Donald Trump's war on the world's most powerful office. You can hear a shorter version of their interview on episode seven of Pardon Me. But we wanted to bring you the entire interview because it was just too good not to. since the Trump era began and maybe earlier, for those of us who've been trying to make sense of it, I mean, one of the really indispensable tools, one of the places you go when you're going, what? He fired Comey? What? What does that mean? Can he do that? Is Lawfare. Lawfare is kind of where you go to find out from really, really knowledgeable people what's going on or or what shouldn't be going on. And so we're very happy today to have guests whom we have coveted for quite some time. Benjamin Wittes, the senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, editor-in-chief of Lawfare, analyst for MSNBC, and the co-author with the next person I'm going to mention of Unmaking the Presidency, Donald Trump's War on the World's Most Powerful Office. The next person I'm going to mention is, in fact, Susan Hennessy, senior fellow at Brookings, executive editor at Lawfare, analyst for CNN, and the co-author of Unmaking the Presidency, Donald Trump's War on the World's Most Powerful Office. I should see that as we speak, the book isn't quite out yet. Although I was able to buy a bootleg version on Canal Street fairly cheaply. It appeared to have been translated into Chinese and then back into English, which created a few problems. But you're going to want this book. I obviously do have a copy of this book, and it is it's like kind of like a manual <laughs> for figuring out all the things that have happened and are happening and I'll be consulting with this book often. So Susan Hennessy, I'm going to have you begin by maybe just talking about what what I take to be the premise of your book, of your op-ed in the New York Times this past week, one of the things that you're looking at, which is that in some fairly unique way, Donald Trump has converted the presidency from a position of service to the people, to the Constitution, to the nation, and into what you guys call a personal and expressive presidency or a personal and expressive way of conducting the affairs of the presidency. Say a little bit more about what you mean by that.
1: Yeah, so we we sort of started with a premise in this book that Donald Trump really was putting an actual vision of the American presidency on the table, and it was a vision that we should take seriously. And as we sort of examined the specific deployments of presidential power through the lens of sort of what is Trump's vision of this office, I think the core thing that emerged for us was this absence of civic virtue and the sense that Trump's sort of vision of how this office functions is that it primarily should serve the interest of the president and that it serves the interests of the public only sort of as an afterthought or coincidentally or when it's convenient. And that that sort of small change, a difference that is not a violation of an express constitutional principle, that really is just a different. In, in worldview and of understanding of the purpose of the presidency, that core change alters the office itself, alters the way we interact with the presidency, alters the way the president uses the executive powers uh, across lots and lots of different metrics. And so the Ukraine scandal that we're seeing play out right now is, is a particularly good example of that. The president is vested with foreign policy powers. The president is vested with overseeing the investigative agencies of the United States. And whenever a president uses those powers that are indisputably within what he's allowed to do, for his own purposes, rather than in a genuine vision of what's best for the country. That warps things in really profound ways.
0: Yeah. And I thought one of the interesting points that you made about that particular thing, Benjamin Wittes, is the way in which some of the norms that President Trump have violated are norms which, if had they been adhered to, would have saved him some trouble. And, and we can use Ukraine as an example. So one of the chapters of your book is basically about what is a presidential decision, what are the components of it, and, and what's the process? By which a presidential decision is reached, and that usually requires quite a bit of consultation. It entails going through certain channels. You have experts who are consulted who can talk about probable outcomes, and then the decision tree that branches out from some of those outcomes, what are we going to do if this happens? What are we going to do if that happens? Are we doing something legal or illegal? And his White House, his administration seems to consist heavily of either Positions that aren't staffed at all. I think Brookings is kind of the keeper of the list of positions that are just are not staffed or people who are there in acting positions or people who are his relatives and the people who are there who are core professionals who might fit the description of people you would consult with are people he doesn't choose to consult with because he's expressive and instinctual. But one of the points you make, Benjamin Wittes, is had he done all that stuff with Ukraine, he could have put a nicer envelope around the card he was playing.
2: Yeah, so if you start at the beginning of the republic, the presidency looked like a virtuous version of the Trumpian presidency. And the reason is that presidents didn't really have any staff, right? And so George Washington kind of had to do things himself. And we quote a passage of a biography of, of John Adams, where he's basically doing all the work, right? He's sitting at home in Quincy, Massachusetts, when his wife is sick. And he's answering thousands of letters himself and giving orders for how a lighthouse is to be built right all these things that we associate with the broader executive branch were originally done by the president himself and over time The executive branch grows up for two reasons. One is that it is actually impossible for the president to run everything himself. And so you develop these cabinet agencies that become staffed with people who do the things. The second reason is to have processes and systems to advise the president so that matters only reach the president for decision when they are actually important enough for the president to decide them himself. Also, that when he has to make a decision, he is exquisitely well-informed of all of the different equities. And all of that we assume to be the way the presidency functions. But it's actually, and this is the part where the expressive presidency really sort of jumps out of the closet it and says, boo, it's all voluntary, right? And if the president actually prefers to just shoot from the hip, he gets to do that. If he just prefers to say, OK, we're going to kill Suleimani now or we're going to withdraw f- from Syria because I just had a conversation with Erdogan and he asked me to. He gets to do that. He gets to jettison all of these processes when he feels like it. And the Ukraine scandal is a good example of this. We expect that foreign policy is going to be conducted by foreign policy professionals who will advise their higher-ups, who will then maybe advise the president. And when the president gets on the phone with the president of Ukraine, he is going to say the things that U.S. policy has represented. And obviously he's in charge of that, but he's also guided by that. What we don't expect is for the president to ignore all the talking points he's given that his process has created and just say, hey, I really want you to do me a favor. Could you investigate my presidential opponent? But there's nothing that actually stops that. And so the point is that we've built up this process presidency through history because it works. But one thing it doesn't work that well at is expression and what we call the vanity plate elements of the presidency. And those are the things that Trump really, really cares about.
0: <laughs> All right. So there's so much in what you just said, Benjamin and So I'm going to pick one little part of it and have you guys kind of walk us through this because we've got an example of the kind of thing that you're talking about. You say in the book, there's a great chapter on the rhetorical power of the presidency. And you say that a presidential statement, you know, should ideally be operational as foreign policy. Policy if the president says it and it's about foreign policy. So let's listen to President Trump talking to Fox News' Laura Ingram a Friday or so ago about what he believed is the rationale for the assassination of Qasem Soleimani.
2: I can reveal that I believe it would have been four embassies, but Baghdad certainly would have been the lead. But I think it would have been four embassies, could have been military bases, could have been a lot of other things, too. But it was
0: eminent. And let's button that up with the thing that came after that, because it actually relates to another chapter of the book. This is Secretary of Defense Mike Esper a few days later with Margaret Brennan on Face the Nation and how he understood that threat to the four embassies.
2: What the president said was he believed that it probably and could have been attacks against additional embassies. I shared that view. I know other members of the national security team shared that view.
1: Probably and could have been. That is That sounds more like an assessment than a specific tangible threat with a a decisive piece of intelligence.
2: Well, the president didn't say there was a tangible, uh, he didn't cite a specific piece of evidence. What he said is he probably, he believed- Are you saying there wasn't one? I didn't see one with regard to four embassies.
0: All right, so Susan Hennessy. I mean, we could get down and dirty and parse all the grammar of this, but it seems as though in that first clip that he, the president of the United States, is saying that four embassies faced an imminent threat, except that all of that has to be kind of fed through the Trump differentiator, where we're constantly saying, but maybe it doesn't have that status. Can you comment a little on that?
1: Yes. I think this illustrates a profound point about the fracturing of the executive branch. So we talk about the non-unitary executive. So the concept of a unitary executive, which is the actual theory, is that there's one president and the president is the head of the executive branch. And really the executive branch is the president, right? It's just kind of his arms and fingers. It's the various people that are going about carrying out his will. And so when the president says something, either makes a factual representation or talks about a policy, we're accustomed over over a long sort of period of history of understanding that the president speaks on behalf of the entire executive branch of the United States. And one thing we've seen over and over again in the Trump presidency is the president says something and then his cabinet officials or his federal agencies will come forward and say something different. And that leaves us in a little bit of An odd, sort of bewildering situation because you have to ask what does that mean and and what is the position of the executive branch is the position of the executive branch that the president believed there was an imminent threat against four four embassies and we need to take that seriously and you know some guy who works for him might have said something different but he's the commander in chief and so we have to sort of evaluate the policy choices and the legal options based off of his representation or is it instead that it's the guy who works for Trump who actually knows what he's talking about who's really informed who has some obligation or or intention to try and tell the truth. And so, really, Trump is just kind of the mascot out there. He's not really speaking for the executive branch. We've seen lots of different institutions really struggling with how exactly to respond to this. So we've seen the judicial branch that has this concept of executive deference, of sort of accepting what the president says as as the the meaning of the executive branch and as having sort of certain presumptions that are assigned with it. seen the Trump's own Department of Justice tell the court, no, 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 ignore the president's tweets. They don't mean anything. They're just observations. Here's our real policy. So you can ignore what he says. We see the Secretary of Defense saying, well, sure, he said four embassies, but he just meant it in a very vague way. And I didn't see, you know, specific intelligence. And that's sort of what we should all be proceeding on. This has really, really significant consequences in how we understand the operation of government, how we understand the project of government accountability. So there are lots of risks that come with having a very strong unitary executive, which is an intentional choice made at the founding of the United States. But one of the benefits is you know who's in charge and you know who to blame when things go wrong. We know who to blame or credit with Obamacare. There's no question in anyone's mind. For the second Iraq war, there's No question in anyone's mind, who's the guy that we hold responsible for that choice? And so it becomes really, really difficult whenever you have a president who... We can't say this is the person that really is setting the policy. It's not just that Trump can be ignored, and that's a good thing for, for people who don't agree with his statements and want to see maybe some um, you know more normalcy in terms of how the government is functioning on a day-to-day basis. Because in the long term, what ends up happening is an erosion of basic accountability. One way we see this play out and play out to Trump's advantage is whenever something happens or there's intelligence produced. That that is inconvenient to the president, he says it's the deep state, right? And he's able to actually distance himself from decisions being made by the executive branch. And that really is not a tenable long-term situation.
0: Right. First of all, you end up with this kind of Salvador Dali version of the buck stops here. There's no buck. There's no here. And another thing that you explain in the book, Benjamin is that I think goes to Susan Hennessy's point is – The people in the deep state or the hypothetical deep state are often really White House officials or executive branch officials who are themselves doing this kind of ethical limbo dance. You know how low can they go? How much can they bend and twist as they kind of reverse engineer reality to conform with some of the president's statements or try to get the president's statements somehow or other ratcheted down? Uh, you guys cite the case of Erica Newland, who was uh, in the office of legal counsel, who finally couldn't take it anymore. She couldn't do the limbo dance anymore. She resigned and she wrote a piece about this, but. It almost sounded like Esper was doing a little bit of what Newland describes, right? He probably doesn't think that there were four embassies under imminent legal attack. So in a public setting with Margaret Brennan, he kind of rewords Trump's statement a little bit to create a little bit more of a conditional fig leaf, which, as you guys write, is very much a pattern in the administration, that these people who are supposedly in the deep state, actually what they're doing frequently is trying to save the president from himself.
2: Yeah, so your question brings together a number of different themes that we play with in the book. One is the almost total disregard for process that this administration operates with and that the president personally operates with. One is his personal propensity to lie or short of lying just to kind of make stuff up and shoot from the hip. and that, often puts his underlings in the position of having to, as you describe, adjust reality to comport with what he just said because one thing that they're not allowed to say is, you know, the president's full of beans on this. Here's the real policy of the United States. Except, of course, that sometimes they do that. The most famous example of this is when Rex Tillerson, then Secretary of State, is asked after Charlottesville about the president's remarks that there were good people on both sides, and Tillerson's response is the president speaks for himself. So every now and then, you do actually see them pull the mask away and announce that there's the stuff that the president says and then there's U.S. policy and I don't actually at the end of the day feel bound by him. And that is both necessary in this environment because the president is detached from reality. It's also very dangerous because the president is the only one who is actually elected. And if you dismantle the unitary character of the executive, in which all of these people are working for an elected figure, then you really do start getting into land that is democratically dangerous.
0: We should say, Benjamin, Wittes, that this is this crosses national borders too. If the president says something like four embassies were in imminent danger of attack. He's not merely speaking to the citizenry of the United States. I mean, it's not that the United States has ever lied about anything, because obviously we have in our history. But as a starting point, I think other nations assume that if, you know, a number like four gets used and a word like imminent gets used, that those are operational terms.
1: One thing we saw sort of a phrase that emerged during the 2016 campaign sort of offered by some supporters of of Donald Trump was that he should be taken seriously, but not literally. So whenever he said that he'd bring back torture and far worse or waterboarding and far worse, we didn't really need to take him literally, that he meant he would engage in war crimes, but that we should take him seriously. He had this real intent to want to be tough and that you could translate what ever Trump said into some sort of marginally acceptable version of that and then that needed to be taken seriously. The problem is is that, you know, foreign leaders in particular don't have the luxury of deciding to take the president seriously but not literally. When the president of the United States says either publicly or, or on Twitter or elsewhere that he intends to levy sanctions. Whenever the president engages in military action that requires particular specific justifications under international law other countries in deciding how to respond, in deciding whether or not the United States is behaving in a legitimate manner or an illegitimate manner, in coordinating their own national interests, they have to accept what the president says is is actually what he means, or, or usually that's how we expect sort of the, the world to function. And so just as we've seen the sort of the, the fracturing and the struggle of institutions and institutional actors within the United States domestic context, struggle with how to grapple with this very unusual feature of the Trump presidency, we see the same thing happening, uh, you know, with foreign leaders. and, And we see a variety of strategies playing out. So some countries appear to be kind of just trying to wait him out. He says things and they try not to overly respond and hope that maybe those lower level bureaucratic actors will come in and clean things up. We see other actors who feel that they have no choice but to take this stuff literally to say that these are genuine threats. They need to respond accordingly. And so we can see how that plays out in the relationship between the United States and Iran, the United States and China, the United States and our various NATO allies. So when a president says that NATO is obsolete, as Donald Trump has, that statement itself erodes confidence in NATO. It helps create the condition by which NATO is obsolete. Because the entire structure of a treaty relationship, of a mutual defense relationship, is that other people believe in the nature of the commitment, the nature of the United States' commitment. And so there are a lot of areas in which Trump might just be shooting from the hip and and sort of talking about his personal expression and based on who's nice to him or, or mean to him. But it still has concrete consequences and, and long-term consequences that will need to be addressed.
0: Since you mentioned NATO, uh, I'll switch back to you, Benjamin Wittes. That gets back to one of the other themes you've already mentioned in the context of Daniel Dresner's toddler-in-chief thread. Not only are his staff often as likely to thwart him as to aid him, but they often treat him as this out-of-control toddler in, in pottery pottery barn just pulling stuff off the shelves. They're trying to save the world from him without him knowing it. And so there's a really interesting thing that you cite uh, in the book in 2018. He's about to go to a NATO meeting. And John John Bolton, much in our minds these days and for the first time ever, a force for moderation, is in his official capacity trying to get a NATO communique ironed out before the president gets there so that the president can't trash it or monkey wrench it. And he's trying to do it without the president knowing it. That's another pattern that you guys describe in the book, right, that you have these aides who are really trying to fool the president a little bit, deceive him about his own reality so that they can make sure bad things don't happen.
2: Right. In the formal structure of the United States government, the president manages the executive branch. In the reality of the Trump administration, the executive branch tries to manage the president. And the brilliance of Dan Dresner's Toddler in Chief thread, which for those listeners who have never seen it, it is now more than 1,100 tweets long. And each tweet is a clip of a news article in which somebody close to the president is talking about managing him the way you would manage a very small child. And each one, Dan writes on it, I'll believe the president is growing in his office when his staff stops talking about him like a toddler. When you look at the scope and scale of this thread of just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of incidents in which people are saying things like, once he goes upstairs and turns on the television, there's no controlling him or compares their own role to that of daycare you realize the sort of tricks associated with parenting of small children are very much at the front of people's minds in terms of how they deal with him. And some of those tricks involve deceit, and some of those tricks involve deception, and some of those tricks involve praise and coaxing. None of them are things that we associated with staffing the president of the United States. We cite a bunch of examples in the in the book reporters have discovered over the years of staff removing documents from his desk secretly to try to prevent him from signing them of, as you described, John Bolton trying to pre-engineer the NATO communique so that Trump doesn't show up and blow it up of people using his schedule to try to prevent him from meeting with people, you know, all of these things that you would associate with the manipulation of a child or a just an incompetent person all being used as part of the day-to-day operations of the presidency and being used that way quite unapologetically. You know, It's not like people are ashamed of what they're doing. And of course, most famously, One senior administration official even wrote an op-ed in the New York Times anonymously about it, which he or she then turned into a book. This is a day-to-day feature of the Trump presidency.
1: And, And one thing we try and take seriously in the book and to be clear about is this might sound like good news if you're someone who doesn't want the United States to impulsively withdraw from important trade agreements, or if you do not happen to, agree with the president's particular policy whims that day, it can feel like a source of relief, thinking, okay, at least there's someone in the room that can take the letter off of his desk. The problem is is that this is democratically corrosive stuff. And so whenever we think about the presidency as an office that changes over time and that the manner in which various presidents conduct themselves changes the nature of the office, These are not habits that we want to see cultivated in the executive branch. And so it is really difficult to be disciplined and think about, well, here's what might be a positive thing sort of as a policy matter or as a national security matter, or even just as a matter of the objective national interest. But whenever we're thinking about structural roles and democratic accountability and how we want to see the president interact with the executive branch and with other branches, this is something that we should be worried about. We should be worried about the president's accusations of a deep state, which of course are false, becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy over time. That is not something that you want to see in a healthy democracy.
0: Right. I mean, all you have to do is transfer this to a different presidency and see how alarming it would be. I mean, if we knew, and I wouldn't be surprised if this were true, but if we knew that Cheney and Rumsfeld were intentionally depriving Bush of relevant military analyses about possible outcomes of an Iraq invasion, things that could go drastically wrong over the long term, if he wasn't getting those kinds of briefings intentionally, that would bother us. If we knew that some state actors uh, within the department were keeping information away from President Obama about Syria or about the Affordable Care Act, it would worry us. We think, in fact, that that executive should have all of the information. So, yeah, it, it might temporarily relieve us to think that they are deciding the best way they can serve the country is to betray President Trump on a regular basis. But it's not a good habit to get into. You know, what are the 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 things that you do that you bring up here, by the way, we're talking to, if you're just tuning in, Susan Hennessy and Benjamin Wittes. They are the authors of Unmaking the Presidency, Donald Trump's War on the World's Most Powerful Office. It's a book that comes out in a couple of days. So one of the things that I think you bring up that's really interesting is that certain theorists of the presidency, starting with Hamilton, would say that you want the presidency to be nimble. You want the president to be able to be a fairly unfettered actor who can get stuff done, who will not be a king, but will have the ability to act in a fairly unencumbered way. And that's part of the genius of the way the office is designed. The problem is that the checks on the office have to be there too. And it seems as though Either one of you can answer this. But it seems as though we're running into a situation now where the checks don't work. I mean, the ultimate two checks are a subsequent election, if it's a first-term president, or impeachment. It seems like none of that stuff works right now. What we have is that nimble and unfettered, instinctual president with not any real way of reining in the worst excesses in. I'd like
2: to say you were right, except I think the problem is worse than you uh, just (laughs) described. Uh, First of all, let's start with the checks that Hamilton imagined because the failure of those are really almost complete. The big protection that Hamilton imagined, and you're going to laugh when I say this because it so doesn't work, is the Electoral College because Hamilton imagined he was very proud of the Electoral College, and his vision was that you would elect these people who would come together and then indirectly by electing these people they would choose a president and that would operate as a bulwark against the possibility that the masses might choose a demagogue the electoral college now operates in precisely the opposite fashion the masses the majority did not choose this demagogue The majority was wise to this situation. The Electoral College, which has become this automatic distribution of small state power, chose over the majority will precisely the sort of figure that the Electoral College was in fact designed to keep out. Moreover, the founders did not imagine party government and the role of political partisanship in maintaining Trump's power has denuded the impeachment process of a lot of its power and threat, has really kneecapped a fair bit of congressional pushback against encroachments that he's engaged in, and has facilitated a lot of the expressive features of the presidency. So if you cannot rely on Congress to say, no, it is not okay for the president to behave that way. But instead, the House of Congress controlled by the president's party will function, no matter how outrageous his conduct, as a support base for it. Then you have really eroded some of the presuppositions of the separation of powers system. You end up putting an immense amount of stress on two features of the constitutional arrangement. One is the possibility of re-election. And if you think about the future of the American presidency, the amount that turns on what happens nine, ten months from now in November is extreme. And the second, which is, of course, a creature of the 20th century, not of the founding, is the two-term limit on the presidency. And so we end up putting immense weight on these constitutional features. Some of the other features that the founders created to make sure the presidency was both nimble and able to act quickly and decisively, nonetheless has real checks upon it. Some of those features really didn't work.
0: I think all of us feel that right now, that it doesn't work. Although, as we're speaking, and the facts on the ground may have changed by the time anybody else hears this conversation, but as we're speaking, there are some indications now that there are Republicans in the Senate who are uncomfortable with Mitch McConnell's earlier assertion that he would essentially work in lockstep with the presidency to get through the impeachment process, that he didn't really see his job as in any way distinct from the aims and goals of President Trump, at least when it came to this particular thing, and you're starting to see the Susan Collinses and the Lamar Alexanders kind of wake up and go, too bad you said that because when you say that, it doesn't sound right. You know, it doesn't sound like a check at all, and that's one of the things we're supposed to be. There are supposed to be checks and balances. So Susan Hennessy, it does seem as though there are some people there within this broken looking system who are maybe less comfortable with brokenness than some of the prime movers like President Trump and Senator McConnell?
1: I think we see, you know, the stirring of a number of members of Congress who are cognizant of their own institutional equities and the role of preserving institutional equities as a critical part of the separation of powers. And so, while they might be willing to subvert their institutional equities for partisan reasons in lots and lots of circumstances, the stakes here are just really, really high. And so, either for genuine reasons of conscience and that they've sworn an oath of office and that they play an important role in our constitutional function or for political reasons, that they want to be perceived as fair and sort of reasonably nonpartisan in, in making these judgments because before their constituents, that they are sort of attempting to ensure that there are actually witnesses are called and that there's the perception of sort of procedural legitimacy. All that said, it's still extraordinarily, overwhelmingly unlikely that the president will actually be convicted and removed from office. So that doesn't mean that this is a failed impeachment. So one sort of interesting feature that we've seen emerge over the course of, of American history is that failed impeachments are the precedent of impeachments, that all impeachments and all previous impeachment have been failed impeachments, meaning being impeached without actual removal, and that that itself is still a very, very important constraint, that it really matters whenever the House of Representatives says, we are defining this conduct as impeachable conduct. We're sending a message not just to this president, but to all future presidents, that this is the kind of thing that will get you impeached. And, And we're putting a marker down, and we're saying, you know, we draw the line here. And the political ramifications of that seem really, really big right now. But those will diminish over time, and the institutional and constitutional Institutional implications will actually grow over time and, and I think become increasingly important. Now, all of that said, it is still unlikely that the president actually uh, ends up being removed from office. And so I think what we have to recognize is that re election here is ratification and that the ultimate choice before the American people is going to be in November and that. We aren't just ratifying or deciding whether or not to ratify the particular policies of Donald John Trump. We are actually ratifying his vision of this office, how it should work, what its purpose is for and who it should serve. And that whenever we look at the history of the American presidency, there are lots of presidents that break norms and do things that that nobody ever did before. And some of those presidents are just blips, right? They do things and it was that way for a little while and then it kind of springs back and nobody ever tries it again. And sometimes presidents do things and it becomes the new norm. It actually alters the office forever. And the, the mechanism by which we decide whether or not Trump changes to the office our blips are blips or permanent? is going to be whether or not he is reelected and whether or not his vision is ultimately a politically successful one. And so one of the important things to sort of keep in mind both as we focus on the, the immediate question of impeachment and also you know, over the next year of the, of the campaign is making sure that we keep those questions clear in our minds and not get overly sort of lost in, in the weeds of very small sort of policy disputes. And there are larger stakes here.
0: You know, I had other questions But that was such a beautiful, although frightening <laughs> ending. I think we're going to end it here. That was Susan Hennessy, senior fellow at the Brookings uh, Institution, executive editor at Lawfare, analyst for CNN, and the co-author with Benjamin Wittes of On Making the Presidency, Donald Trump's War on the World's Most Powerful Office. Also in this conversation, Benjamin Wittes, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, uh, editor-in-chief of Lawfare, analyst for MSNBC, and the co-author of that book, which is, it comes out in a few days, and it's really, really terrific. You're the kind of person, anyway, who's trying make sense out of chaos it's going to turn out to be pretty indispensable I want to thank both of you for spending this time with us
1: thanks for having us thanks for having us
0: I'm sentimental if you know what I mean I love the country but I can't stand the scene and I'm neither left or right I'm just staying home tonight getting lost in that hopeless little screen i stubborn as those garbage bags of time cannot decay I'm a junk, but I'm still holding up this little wild bouquet Democracy is coming